This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Hone your development skills at learn.thoughtbot.com. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Alex Tausig. How are you, Alex? I'm doing great, thanks. Good. So you are a partner at Highland Capital? That's correct. Cool. How do you like that? It's great. Uh, venture capital is a very fun job. It's very unique. You know, we're, we're a tiny industry. Like, the, you know, if global capital markets are trillions and trillions of dollars, and, you know, the venture industry will raise somewhere between 15 and 20, maybe, maybe probably less actually in the down years, maybe like 10, somewhere between 10 and $20 billion a year. So to put that in context, you know, that's like the size of one of Blackstone's funds, hmm. right? In the private equity world. So the entire industry is, is really small, but the upside of that is that we get to have an outsized impact on the state of innovation and the companies that we back can turn it into, into companies that employ thousands and sometimes even tens of thousands of people you know, over the course of 10, 20 years and become new companies on the NASDAQ. And so it, it's a tiny industry that has a lot, like, massive impact on the world, which is what initially attracted to it, me to it. Um, you know, whatever we do that's good and, you know, we do some things well and other things, you know, we don't do as well, but whenever we do something good, you know, hopefully that is actually amortized over lots and lots and lots of people and lots of customers. And the way I look at it is it's a way to have a global impact with sort of, you know, local effort. Mm. Um, so I, uh, that's kind of what initially attracted me to it. Yeah. So you mentioned that it's, it's smaller relative to other markets. I wonder if that's, is, do you think that's by necessity? Is it like, is venture capital such a, a business where you need to know people and be connected and interview lots of companies where it, that there's a cap on the size of it? Well, you know, I just, I think at the end of the day, it's like the, the real forcing function is how much capital the companies need hmm. at a given stage, right? Um, so, you know, if I raise a $10 billion, $20 billion fund, you know, I couldn't go force a hundred million dollars into your Series A company. There just, there just, there would be no use for it. I mean, mm. I guess someone would take it, but that would probably not be a good idea. Right. Um, so there is, there is usually, you know, VCs want to invest more money. Entrepreneurs want to sell less of their company, and like, there's a, you know, back and forth negotiation that happens, and you know, there's some number that comes out, and there's both in terms of amount of capital and percent dilution, and that's the amount that goes in at a Series A, and then over time. You know, you keep buying. It's a funny industry because you you buy it once, you buy say twenty percent once, and then you keep buying twenty percent over and over because you keep exercising your pro rata. So over time, you invest more, maybe you invest twice as more, maybe three times as more uh, in the company over its lifetime. Mm -hmm. But you know, that's it. You're not going to get to the point where these companies need th that kind of capital. And so sometimes when people raise larger funds, they end up doing just more deals and they hire more partners. My experience has been that. The larger the partnership gets, the more difficult it is to make decisions because mm -hmm. necessarily they're just it's like uh, Metcalf's law, I think. Right. I mean, there's 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 some scalability with regard to how many communications you have to have to make a decision. And it's not linear. Right. So at some point, it just becomes a little bit unmanageable. It's also harder to make controversial decisions with larger groups of people. Oh, yeah. For everything. For everything. Right. Like small teams can decide to do something that's a little bit unorthodox, but they can get it through. It's harder in larger groups. So I think there's a number of reasons that venture capital funds don't get beyond a certain point. And there's a number of exceptions. And then there's, you know, a number of firms that have raised larger funds or raised, you know, middle sized funds, but raise them at a faster clip. But uh, I'm kind of a believer in my firm is kind of a believer in sort of small, agile teams of partners, you know, getting deals done, and really getting in early uh, with companies. So it's, you know, I don't think it'll ever be 
10 times what it is today. It, it was during the bubble. Hmm. And we're just now winding that the effects of that down. Yeah. It's interesting that you mention uh, communication so early on. So you have a, you have a, a blog post that I liked a lot called High Baud Rate Founders. <laughs> and you sort of said that, the, I'll actually read a quote from it, which is, the early startup teams who communicate most effectively with one another tend to get the most done in a given period of time. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to me that you, you thought the constraint was ability to communicate. Yeah. Well, there's other constraints too. Um, so it's like a chemical reaction. You have to ask yourself what the rate limiting factor is. Hmm. But sometimes when you're making very quick decisions and you're iterating on things, it requires a lot of, if you don't know the other person, it requires a lot of level setting and it requires a lot of kind of like, you know, whiteboarding things, scrapping them and coming up with new ideas. Hmm. And the whole point of the blog post was basically that the teams I've observed that work the best are the ones who actually have, you know, these long-term relationships where there's certain things that go unsaid. Hmm. There's certain there's certain things that are that are implicit in the way people have worked together in the past that don't need to be explicitly said and therefore you don't waste cycles and you tend to move quicker. Um, that's why like you'll often see founding teams of people that like they, they work together in college on lots and lots of projects. They never mm-hmm. really started a company, but like they've just been working together so much that by the time they start a company, it's just it just moves fast. Hmm. Um, you know, I remember when I was doing physics in college. You know, we had a group of kids that the three or four of us. We were in classes for three years straight, and we would just take classes together. And when we worked on problem sets, you know, by the time a senior year rolled around, we were like a well-oiled machine. Uh, you know, there was not a lot of explanation of whose role it was to do X. Um, mm-hmm. We would just partition work and we'd communicate. And every communication we had had a very high signal to noise ratio. So that that's kind of the spirit of, of that post. Yeah, it was interesting. And that makes sense. I don't know if that would have been the first thing I would have guessed. Like what, what makes founders effective? Well, maybe being really strong technologically or like having an amazing vision or something like that. And it kind of boils down to something almost simpler than that. Well, vision vision's great, but if, if you can't get it out of your head, it doesn't yeah. really do you much good. In my view, there's many, many, many things that make great entrepreneurs and everyone will have their own list and prioritize things differently. Mm-hmm. But um, having the idea is not really good enough. You actually have to go convince people to go climb the mountain with you. And it helps when, you know, you can actually communicate that, you know, efficiently with other people, both just from a information transfer standpoint, but also from a, you know, a sellability standpoint and a motivation standpoint. Yeah. And then, of course, you actually have to go do it, right? You actually have to go be the person that executes it. So this was sort of one microcosm, but it was really written in a reaction to something that I'd seen in the market, particularly as someone who went to business school. You know, you you see a lot of times in business school, you find the, I call them like um, whiteboard businesses. Like people kind of say, I want to start a company. And they go to the whiteboard and they start to talk about different businesses they want to start. And then they, they try to find other people around them to go start the company, but there's no working relationship. And this can actually, if you have really like bright, hardworking people, this this facade can actually persist for a number of months. Um, And externally, it can look like everything is going great. But I've seen them fall apart. And they usually fall apart because people just don't level set with one another another, and they don't know how to work together. Um, And there's too much like there's there's the way I think about the problem. There's the way you think about the problem. And six months into it, we realize we're actually thinking about things differently. Like your, your vision of the product is not mine. Mm-hmm. And uh, that gets de-risked when you have people who have known each other for a while. It sounds trivial, but it's an investment risk that I look at when founders have, don't have a working relationship. Hmm. I want to switch gears entirely for a second um, and ask you kind of a weird question. So uh, there are certain professions, like let's say like lawyers and recruiters, where people tend to have like an automatic negative association. 
Do you experience that as a venture capitalist? You know, it's, it's funny. It's like, you know, people generally are nice. Like they don't like to tell you that you suck to your face. Right. right. Uh, so I don't get a lot of people coming out to me in San Francisco and going, Ugh, venture capitalist, you suck. Yeah. Um, we do have protests and stuff, but um, they're not usually aimed at venture capitalists, thankfully. Yeah. Again, we're a small industry and most people don't know what we do. But uh, yeah, I, I think that, you know, look, Silicon Valley worships the engineer and the, the, the maker, the doer, right? Mm-hmm. And anyone who's not that, to some degree, you know, is perceived as, as a second class citizen. The question is, how are you, are you happy with that? Are you satisfied with that? And I think that, um, you know, we play a very important role in the ecosystem. And um, I think the founders that we work with, you know, know the value of having us on board. And so that's what I mostly care about. I, I mostly care about, you know, do the people I work with think that I'm contributing to helping them build their companies. And, you know, hopefully that's true. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's always people who think that the financial community doesn't necessarily add a lot of value. And maybe they're right. Maybe they had a bad experience. Um, It's not necessarily true in my world. But again, people don't volunteer that information. Uh, There's probably no reason for them to. Right. So what does a day look like for you? Every day is totally different. It's a very weird job. Hmm. Um, Here's how I kind of break it down when people ask me what I do. Mm-hmm. There's kind of seven steps to doing venture capital or seven activities that venture capitalists do. And by the way, as I give the order, you're, you're going to basically, the, when you start in your career, you're doing more of number one. And when you're kind of very, very senior, it's more of the last part. Mm-hmm. So uh, the first part is sourcing, right? So this is the bread and butter. If you're not sourcing, you're really not doing much. And uh, what that consists of is finding things before other people do. Hmm. Uh, it's finding great entrepreneurs to partner with, uh, and uh, this can be at any stage. And you know, if you're a growth, if you're a venture growth kind of person, you have different techniques than if you are a seed investor. And uh, we do pretty much everything at Highland. So, and we have guys who have different styles. My style is more of a relationship network kind of style of sourcing. Hmm. Most of the investments that I've made or sourced over the years. You know, I, we're either sourced by someone I know well, or the entrepreneur is actually someone who I know well. Mm. And uh, that, from my perspective, is the advantage of bringing in people to the firm who have you know networks that are fairly extensive. And and the cool thing about your network is, as you get older and you get more senior, so does so does your network. Mm, you know, right. when I got out of business school, everyone I knew was kind of taking you know sort of entry level jobs. A lot of these people are VPs and directors now. And in a few years, they, some of them will even be CEOs probably of, of large, giant companies. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love that about my job is the, the work that you do early on to help people out early in their career, that'll pay dividends down the road. And so I, I believe in sort of this karmic cycle of my business. I try to help people as much as I can because we're all in this together. And at some point, you know, great people you know, some of them will start companies and hopefully they call me. So this is how I do business. But, you know, I know a lot of folks in the industry who will create a list of every company in a market and regardless of stage, and they'll just cold call every single company. Hmm. And sometimes that works too. I, t- I tend to think that works less well in Silicon Valley um, because it is so well networked. But if you want to do deals in other markets where it's less saturated by venture capital, that's actually a, a good strategy. And a lot of people have made great careers in investing doing that. Hmm. So when, when you're sourcing, there must be specific things you're looking for. Like you're looking for a fire that you can pour more fuel on, right? Well, some, sometimes that's a straightforward metaphor. Other times it's really not. It's, okay. If you're doing early stage investing, sometimes you find an incredibly strong technical team with a great prototype and no idea how to 
commercialize it. Mm-hmm. And that's why we get paid a lot of money by our investors is to find these opportunities where, it, you know, if you can build this thing, it is a solvable problem to figure out what the business model will be. Mm. But you have to get comfortable with the fact that you might not know what it is today. Mm. And you have to have the faith that the founders will figure it out or you can recruit people into the business who can figure it out. You know, that fuels the fire metaphor is is true when you're in sort of the B and C stage where you're hiring the sales team and you're doing paid marketing and all these things. But early on, what I look for first and foremost is a technical team that is world class in that area that really has uh, is at the beginning of something great and in their past lives have shipped really, really complex but commercially successful products before. Mm. Um, so that the checks the box on can they build it. And then if they can build it, is there a big enough opportunity? And for that, you have to think about the tectonic shifts in technology platforms and the opportunities that those create. And there's no one cookie cutter approach to this. But what I, I try to be a student of history with regard to technology. I try to study you know, trends that have happened in the past because I, I actually do think that if you pay enough attention, you can find predictors of, of the future and things that didn't work out in one era might necessarily actually work out in another area totally. or metaphors from platforms from prior periods could be valid now. So when you combine those two things, that's to me what, and then by the way, some, some sort of prototype, like some exercise and effort to create, you know, in terms of validating that, that you can actually put things together in a way that makes sense to a customer. Mm-hmm. Like if you take those three things together, I think that can make a compelling series A investment. Um, some would say a seed investment, but it just depends on the capital requirements. The fuel to the fire thing, I, I look at that as strong product market fit. We need to basically build a go-to-market team. And that could be sales, marketing, customer support, whatever, whatever you have. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, totally. The other steps are, and I'll go faster through them. I mean, we, we look at due diligence as a crit- critical thing. Like you spend especially for larger investments, you spend an inordinate amount of time really doing the work to verify market demand, to verify the technological progress the company's made, to think about pricing and business model and unit economics, to uh, think through any IP issues, to think through competitive analysis. I mean, there's all sorts of buckets of due diligence. And um, we like to say at at Highland, you know, what are the three big questions? Mm. You know, what are the three big questions you need to answer? Because you're never going to be able to have enough time to really get 100% satisfied, even if, even if that was possible. Yeah. Um, but what are the three questions that if any of them was no, the answer was no, you, you wouldn't want to invest. Mm. And that's what we focus on in diligence. Then there's the other parts that are kind of less talked about, right? There's you know the, the sort of process of getting a deal done internally at a firm. You know This is something that is ne- almost never discussed publicly, but there are different things you have to do to get a deal done inside your firm. And hopefully you, you've engendered the trust of your partners to be able to actually get that deal done. Mm. So this is like political things? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're a partnership, right? You make decisions as a, as a group. Yeah. And uh, it's different inside of every firm. And every firm has its own sort of, you know, issues in terms of how you get things done. The people who have the ability to wield influence can actually do better, I think. I've seen some people who at other firms, you know, friends of mine who didn't really feel like they were able to step up and make the case internally. And it affected their ability to have a career in the business. Hmm. Um, you actually have to be able to convince other people to come on board with your thesis yeah, on you're this doing company. sales almost. It's sales in a sense, but I mean, these are these are the people you work with every day, and there's a small group, right? Yeah. So, how, at, how many partners in, do you have at Highland? We have about uh, eight partners uh, in the U.S. Okay. When you want to get something done, you convince seven other people to get on board. Well, it's not exactly that because effectively, if you really want to do the deal, people trust you. Mm-hmm. But during the process, you know, there's questions that come up, and I want my partners to feel good about 
the investment, right? Like, cause we're, we're all on the same side of the table. And so, you know, I want to go answer their questions. And if I haven't answered their questions, they're going to tell me I haven't answered their questions. And right. then they're going to suggest, here's someone you should go talk to to answer this. So it's also helpful to me because it helps me problematize. And that healthy sort of tension between me wanting to go run and do it and them telling me, you know, here are the things we want to understand. That's what ultimately forms, I think, good investment decisions. But at the end of the day, it's your choice. Mm-hmm. You can go do the investment or you don't. But, but they're basically providing you guidance as to how to make the decision. I, I think that is how probably most firms work. There are some firms where ours is not one of these firms, but there are some firms where there is one person who basically is the decision maker. And in those firms, it works differently. If you have to go convince that person, and if that person doesn't agree, then you're not going to do the investment. Yep. I generally think that's not the right way to run a, a partnership. You always want to rely upon the conviction of an individual partner who's closest to the deal, maybe two partners, um, because they're going to know. And frankly, you have to build room for dissent into the process because some of the best deals are really controversial. Mm. It's like I think Peter Thiel talks, talks about this sometimes where he says it's not good enough to be right. You, know, you also have to be right when other people think you're wrong. Mm-hmm. That's when you make a lot of money. Right. So if you extrapolate that to a partnership, there's going to be people who don't agree with you. And you have to get them comfortable with the fact that you've answered the questions adequately and that you might not agree, but you're still going to do the deal. Mm-hmm. That's the part that often doesn't get discussed, but I think is important to our business, sort of how the sausage is made. Yeah. That's, by the way, that's all the stuff that happens before the deal. Then you're on the board of the company and you could be on the board of the company for eight, eight, nine years, mm. right? Um, so most of the job is actually trying to help entrepreneurs build their businesses and firms differ, take a different approach to this, right? I mean, there's some firms that are full service. There's some firms that are more boutique-y. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're somewhere in between. Um, we have some services, but we also feel that you know this is a one-to-one kind of business where you have a relationship with a partner and that partner needs to be 24 hours a day available for you if anything comes up. Hmm. We're in a service business, not too dissimilar to the sort of the boutique investment banks of your or the boutique law firms where you really, back in the day, used to have a relationship with like one partner and he was going to help you out. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, that's the attitude that we take. And there's a lot of things we do to help. We also try to stay out of your way. That's something that is often not thought about too often in, in, when entrepreneurs take money from venture guys and gals. But you don't want to have someone who's going to be constantly questioning every decision you make, constantly inserting their product judgment. You know, it's easy to come in and, and give a bunch of advice and then leave the room. It's harder right. to actually sit there in the company and go implement it. And so while I'm probably as guilty as anyone of, of doing that, I also know that it's not my job to make those decisions, that my job is to be a sounding board. And then when I'm asked to help out in any way I can. And then lastly, we go and raise funds, right? So we go and raise money from institutional investors. And we do that on some sort of cycle between two and four years. And when we do that, as you sort of advance in your career as a VC, uh, you spend more time with your what are called limited partners, which are the people that give us money to invest. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a very important part of our business. And uh, it's really great, you know, as I've sort of been in the industry to have gotten more exposure to our investors because at the end of the day, we're investing their money and we're, we're sort of in service of them. And uh, I, what I love about the job is it's sort of like you play this intermediary role. We, we sit between the financial markets and the technologist and we have to translate, right? So mm-hmm. if I spend most of my days talking to folks who you know, build you know, websites and mobile apps, I also have to then go talk to someone who works at an institutional money manager and explain to them what's going on in Silicon Valley. 
And it's a fun challenge because you, you need to be able to walk in both worlds. That's the long version. <laughs> I actually have a longer one, but that's the, the long version. Oh, it's okay. We have, we have a really good editor. He's just going to chop all this down. Perfect. <laughs> um, so you said that as your career progresses, you tend to move from those early things to more to the late. Uh, yeah. Where are you these days? I guess I'm somewhere towards the middle. Um, I've been doing venture for about five years, a little over five years now. When I started, uh, I was hired by one of the founders of the firm. And uh, we kind of have an apprentice model internally. I, I, I basically did a lot of the work uh, behind the scenes for him for a number of years. Uh, and it was a great way to learn the business. Uh, he took me to all of his board meetings for years. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a phenomenal investor. I'm, I'm super lucky that I had that opportunity. A lot of people don't have that opportunity to work for someone great. And, and, and the reason that's important is because you, you may have heard this a lot, right? But this is a pattern recognition business. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, where do you get your initial patterning from? My, my answer to that is you have to steal it from someone. And uh, I stole it from Paul. <laughs> like a lot of the way I think about deals was informed by, by his judgment. And of course, I've added my own over time. But uh, early on, it prevents you from making probably dumb decisions sure. uh, because you have someone else looking over your shoulder uh, and, uh, and that's a very useful thing. You know, venture capital without having some sort of filter, you can really hurt yourself very quickly. Uh, so it, that, that helps. But then over time, I started, as I guess, started bringing in more investments. We and started, you know, building more relationships with entrepreneurs. I got more responsibility. And, you know, eventually by the time I became partner, um, I was spending more time with the portfolio, more time um, helping support my partners on their diligence and you know, even time, you know, with our LPs. And I expect that'll continue. And there's just a simple matter of the math too, right? Like as you acquire more portfolio companies, just you spend more time with portfolio companies. Right. So, you know, I, I have, you know, a relatively small board load at this point, but at some point I won't. So, uh, I'm lucky in the sense that I get to spend a lot of my time sourcing. Whereas, you know, when you've been doing this for 20 years and you have 10 or 11, portfolio companies you just don't have the luxury of doing that so it's nice to be able to get out there and find new things hmm. too how do you evaluate your own performance it's a really tough question it is a really really tough question i mean i can tell you how our investors evaluate our performance right <laughs> I, I bet that's simpler right it's a lot simpler they just look at the numbers right right they they, they say you know what's this individual's irr mm-hmm. what's this individual's rate of return you know that's not how i evaluate m- myself I, I kind of think about my ability to, I think for one case, it was like, how, how good am I at actually bringing in things that are really, really interesting, compelling entrepreneurs doing new things in, in new markets? Like, am I good at finding those things? Am I, am I getting a sense that it's something is big before other people are doing it? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm pretty confident that, I'm, that I've been doing that for a number of years now. Um, I think as you become more senior in a venture firm, the second question becomes, can you win? Can you actually go head to head with the best people in the industry and win deals? Mm-hmm. And that's something that I, I am confident in, but it's brutally competitive in this industry. You know, you, you, you do lose sometimes and it hurts. Yeah. L- losing being where another firm comes in and, and does the investment instead of you. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah, you're usually competing head to head. I mean, it, look, the, the, the situation is in the Valley, at least, which is where I, I live, most interesting opportunities with great entrepreneurs get multiple term sheets. It's very rare that that, that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you have to somehow convince founders that you're the one they should partner with. And um, 
sometimes you win and sometimes you lose and hopefully you you win the right ones and you and you don't lose the right ones right but it's it, it, it can be tough so that that's the part if i it, it, my my win rate is very important to me because uh, i think at the end of the day that's that's the leading indicator that you're going to be great 15 years from now hmm. and is that that's the time horizon you're thinking well, I, I, it's it's a career decision, right? So hopefully you have a few monetization opportunities uh, in the first, say, five to seven years of your career. But it it takes a while to really you know be a proven person. I mean, you know, I was lucky that the first deal I ever brought into Highland, we ended up making money on, mm-hmm. and we and it was quick. You know, it could have it could have been a, a longer term business, but you know, for whatever reason, we you know the company was sold, and uh, I think it's always good to have in early in your career a couple like that, that sort of validate that, you, that you're doing good things. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of people in our industry who spend 10 years before they have their first big exit. And by the way, that's 10 years as a partner. Mm. So that's not including the time you spent kind of working your way up the ladder, right? Right. So it's, it's, it's an interesting business. Um, it's hard to measure yourself objectively. And there's even companies, well, I don't know, you guys, are, you guys do software development, so you know Docker. Um, I mean, look at mm-hmm. Docker, right? Docker was, you know, Doc Cloud, and uh, the guys who invested in Doc Cloud, but when, when at the time they invested in Doc Cloud, they had no idea it was going to turn into Docker, mm-hmm. right? So you might have felt kind of bad about yourself right around the time they were pivoting, but you feel great now, right? So even even if you have perfect information at the time, it's still unclear what makes you good in the long term. But I, I guess what I look at is sort of. Am I seeing the best opportunities in the area that I'm focused on? And am I winning the ones I really want to win? Hmm. So I asked you earlier, like, what a day is like, and we kind of, we never really quite got there. So like, what, <laughs> g- give me, give me an example. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to avoid the question. <laughs> That's okay. uh, the day usually starts around seven in the morning okay. over coffee um, and triaging emails. <laughs> okay. Over coffee with somebody you mean, or just no, you're having coffee? No, co- that's coffee at home. Okay. Uh, I find that I need coffee to actually triage emails that that, that occurred like super late the, the prior night, yeah. and then usually I have like a breakfast meeting that morning, okay. and then I'll basically you know have a couple maybe you know five or six meetings a day. Um, some of those can be calls, but I generally like to if if I'm interested enough to meet someone, I usually want to do it in person, but sometimes logistically it doesn't work out. I spend a lot of time visiting companies at their offices. I I have a personal bias. Uh, I think that. Uh, when you visit a company at their office, uh, as opposed to a coffee shop, you learn a lot more about how the company operates. There's certain environmental clues that you pick up. So I spend a lot of time in my car uh, and in Ubers mm-hmm. going between companies. That's pretty much Tuesday through Friday. On Mondays, we get together as a partnership. We spend most of the time together. And during that period in time, we will update each other on portfolio companies. Um, we will discuss you know, new, hot you know, companies that are coming through that we're working on. Mm-hmm. We will t- talk about internal things, you know, organizational things that we're trying to get done. Uh, and we'll bring in companies to present for the f- sort of formal investment recommendation. Um, and they'll come in and present to the, to the whole firm at one time. And uh, that's a pretty typical week for us. We kind of start off with that and then we move into a week of kind of meetings. And if I'm doing diligence on a company, I'll probably block aside a couple hours a day just for actual, like, you know, doing reference checks on people, creating financial models, that kind of thing. But it's, it's, there is no like typical day. It's, it's very much a varied activity. And if you do find something that is incredible, you basically 
blow up your whole calendar and focus on that. So mm. it, it, can, it can change at a whim. And by the way, my partners can do that to me too. <laughs> mm. So if one of my partners finds something incredible and he says, we got to go meet these, these guys, we drop everything and we go do it. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've done that myself a few times. Um, it's just the, the, the speed of our business is just incredible. So mm. we have to have that flexibility. So you say you, you are on a handful of boards now these days? Yeah, a handful. There's about, I guess, two right now, and then there will be a third soon. <laughs> okay. Uh, we can't talk about that one, though. Yeah, fair enough. So do you find yourself, <laughs> so you're, you're in a position to offer advice and act as a sounding board. Do you find yourself tending to repeat certain things? I don't know. I forget I forget if I'm repeating myself sometimes. <laughs> okay. I, just, I generally, like, I, when people say advice, it sort of, like, sounds paternal and kind of patronizing in, mm. in, in a way to me. I just offer context. That's how I think about it. Okay. For better or for worse, I've been involved not just with the companies that I'm working on myself as a board member, but the companies where I, you know, shadowed another partner early on in my career or friends I know who have, who are who Highland's not even an investor, but for whom I'm a confidant mm-hmm. and understand a little bit more about their business. I mean, I just, because I'm out there, there's just hundreds and hundreds of companies that, whose life cycles I've observed, I've observed and I've seen them succeed and I've seen them fail. And that context swims around in my brain and then when someone, when I'm having a conversation with one of our CEOs and they say something, I go, oh, well, I saw this happen once and this is what they did. And you may want to think about doing this. Yep. And sometimes I repeat that. Sometimes it's just a new thing. But it's that, it's that you know, my neural synapses like reacting to the outside world. And hopefully, again, if you keep doing this for a long enough time, you, you become really good at that because you've acquired so much information. So I, I tell founders, it's like you can find context in the things I say, I'm very loath to actually tell people to do things because that's not my place. What I, my place is to help them think through problems then provide them context. Mm. Makes sense. So uh, do you want to talk about Summer at Highland? Uh, 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 sure, yeah. yeah is, that, is that a no? Well, it, it, we're, not, we're, we haven't, we're not doing it this year in the same way. Uh, okay. So we're, we're working on something different right now. Gotcha. Um, so I'm happy to talk about it in the past, but it's you know not as... If it's old news, no way. I don't want it. I don't. I don't think it's as, you know, okay. pertinent. Yeah, I, we, did, we decided not to do the program the same way this year. Okay, my listeners would be mad if I shipped them old news. I know. I know. <laughs> uh, so what haven't I asked you about that we should talk about? Is this going? Is is this interview going where you thought it would go? I had no expectations to be honest with you. Okay. I'm just glad you didn't ask me about like how do I code some, a particular like thing. Uh, in the because that would have been uh, a, a heinous disaster. Um, <laughs> Expose um, you as a pro- programming imposter. Well, yeah, I, I just I just know enough to be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, I think that uh, you guys have a interesting view of the world too, right? Because you get to work with a lot of companies that are trying to build things and maybe don't have the resources to do it themselves. I mean, what what is your view of like you know particularly? I'm interested in. Swift and you know how that's you know building and um, like the one of the things I like to look for is my more technical friends or the people that I know who are actually software developers they'll see things before I do because they're actually implementing them. I mean, mm-hmm. what have you seen that surprised you uh, in terms of new trends in software? Hmm. Well, I don't have firsthand experience, but the iOS people in the office are definitely excited about Swift. And are you writing apps for clients in Swift now, or is it more just sort of? sandbox stuff internally i don't think we are writing any currently but i think the plan is like you know to do it as soon as possible 
I don't know if a client comes and asks you specifically for a language, right? Not usually. They, they usually ask you for features. Right. And then you guys decide what you want to use. Exactly. But I, so I guess it's the choice of the engineers to decide what they want to build something in. Yeah. I know Dan Croak and I were talking about Go a little while ago and how that's becoming something he's very interested in. Are you guys are you guys experimenting with that as well? There's definitely experiments going on. Again, I don't, I don't think there's actual paid work being done on that yet. But yeah. it, it could have been happening and I, I don't know about it. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I don't have any particular questions that I that I thought you were going to ask me. I guess I was sort of, you know, wondering what what your listeners would actually be interested in from a venture capital perspective. Yeah, you know? that's. The, I'm trying to. I was trying to think that myself. Like, what what can the average person be get most usefully? I, I mean, presumably some of them are interested in eventually in getting venture capital one day, probably. Yeah. Like maybe so, like presumably. I mean, I, I you know I don't know that it's the right it's the right solution for for everyone, right? Totally. I'm sure it's not. I've actually seen quite a few businesses that I was very impressed with that I didn't think the right move was to raise venture capital. Mm -hmm. You know, I was just talking with an entrepreneur before I came over here about how sometimes we invest in bootstraps businesses. These are companies where the founders either, you know, didn't want to or couldn't raise capital and somehow built a tens of millions in revenue, you know, very profitable company. And this guy's reaction was, wow, I, I can't believe they did that. And I was like, well, you know, there was a time when that was the only way, right? right? This is the this is was actually the way most people built companies. Mm -hmm. You know, it's you know Sam Walt. I don't know. You know, Sam Walton actually did raise venture capital, I believe, to build Walmart. But you know, if you go way back in time, you know, it has Sears Roebuck and uh, Piggly Wiggly and you know all these great American companies. It was way before institutional venture capital existed. That's mm -hmm. only really the institutional side of venture capital has only been around since like 1979. Uh, there was a particular law that got uh, repealed that allowed pension funds to invest in the asset class. And before that, it was a lot of basically rich individuals who got together to fund companies. So this has only been happening for a little while. Yeah. So I, I always tell people doing it differently is not a bad thing. Sure. Uh, in fact, that's sometimes preferable. Mm -hmm. It's crazy how much of this industry is that young. Take the Internet, for example, Yeah. is a teenager. It's like kind of amazing. It's it's fascinating. Um, you know, I was I was a user of the internet way before I was interested in it as a from a business perspective. And yeah. I actually, when I learned software, I learned it in in the context of of research. You know, I, I was using software to automate the things I was doing in academia, and it it didn't occur to me until years later that that was the same stuff that websites are made of. <laughs> and uh, there's things I took for granted, and there's probably even more things that the next generation there will take for granted, like having an internet connection. Like, yeah. Right. Like that is totally taken for granted. We're kids that are growing up with mobile phones in their pockets. They're used to being connected 100 percent of the time. I mean, you know, I had to sit there and wait for three minutes while my, you know, 28K modem, you know, connected to, to New York and it never connected at 28. It was right, always like 15 or something. Yeah. Um, I remember downloading images and they would kind of load line by line. Absolutely. Right? You know, I, I feel a little bit like an old fogey kind of saying this, but I, I think having that perspective is actually really important because when new platforms launch, they're not perfect, right? They don't look like real serious things. And if you haven't seen one of these cycles, you mm. don't know that a kind of crappy product now could be phenomenal later. Right. And uh, I've gone through this a few times personally where I've seen a company with a product and I'm kind of like, eh, that's not, that's not that impressive. But then it becomes something really impressive later. And, and the only times I've been burned by that was when I didn't have faith that there was there was something real that would get iterated into. Uh, and I think that's helpful now that I've seen a, a few technology generations go by. Yeah, you know? makes sense. Awesome. Well, I think that's actually a really good place to stop. 
Excellent. Yeah. Well, you know, I appreciate you having me on and hopefully you get something good out of this. Yeah. Uh, it was somewhat useful for your listeners. And uh, yeah, you know, if, if any of them decide that they want to start companies and are looking for some guidance, you know, I'm always happy to provide guidance. That's totally free and help you think through, you know, if you want to raise capital at some point. And uh, that's an offer I put out there freely. So cool. OK, we'll, we'll put your contact information in the show notes. Terrific. And my Twitter handle, if you if you will, because I need some more followers. Yeah, absolutely. Great. No problem. Today's show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash giantrobots slash 109. Thanks for listening.